Welcome to Into the Breach, a reps and warranties policy podcast by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer, partners and co-leaders of the Transactional Underwriting Council practice at Cyforth Shaw, interviewing leaders from the industry and exploring the latest developments, market trends, and news impacting RWI and the transactional risk insurance markets. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Into the Breach. I'm Brian O'Keefe and joined by my co-host Jenna Usenheimer. How are you, Jenna? I'm good, Brian. I'm actually um, like mainlining the coffee today. I'm pretty tired. It's been a long week, so I am also looking forward to Saturday for sure. Well, it has been a long week and spring is finally upon us. And your, your our loyal podcast listeners will know that Jenna uh, was uh, sort of snow snowbird or whatever and went to Florida, <laughs> but your spring is here and you're back in New York City now, right? I'm coming to you live from the Cyfarth in New York office, actually. Yep. There you go. And you're half vaccinated as well now too, right? Yes. My, uh, my, the, the, our loyal listeners will recall the Florida walk into the public's plan and see if there was excess vaccine, which failed spectacularly in Florida, but was very successful in Manhattan. And so I was a walk-in at Dwayne Reed. So now I'm just waiting for my second shot. So good news. There you go. There you go. And I hear you had some success with the Florida plan as well, Brian. I I did. Well, I was, uh, it's been still rationed in Washington, DC, where I live at, but uh, my wife and I were out in the middle of nowhere, Virginia, this past this past weekend, and I was at a grocery store buying groceries, and sure enough, they had lots of vaccine, and I went up to the <laughs> counter, and it was like asking for Tylenol, so, um, okay. you know, there are some vaccine-weary uh, areas, I guess, we keep hearing about, uh, not necessarily in the big cities we all live in, but uh, I was fortunate enough to get it as well, so I'm halfway there, and uh, awesome. it's all good news, so we continue to make progress through the through the pandemic here, so. And well, unlike we'll, me, you like hardly felt the first shot, right? You were like, I, like, I was like nothing. Not I know. I know you had gotten sick after the first one, but I was resilient. What can I say? So I am equal parts happy for you and like pissed that I was the only person. <laughs> uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> Those are fighting words, right? <laughs> All right. Well, well uh, we, we are not pissed that we have a wonderful guest with us today. Um, Very smooth, that Brian. guest is uh, Josh Warren, uh, who's the uh, Senior Vice President in the M&A Advisory Practice Leader at ABD uh, Investment and Financial Services. Um, he's a, a, a real leader in the reps and warranty space, and we are very excited to have you uh, with us today, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great, great. And Josh is going to be here today um, talking, talking about a very, uh, really interesting topic we're going to talk about, and that is uh, sort of the underlying insurance and, and other insurance coverages and how that interacts with with reps and warranty insurance, uh, a, a very, uh, very different sort of topic we've not really ever talked about on this show. And we're really happy to have Josh be here to discuss that with us. Uh, but before we get to that, maybe Josh, uh, for those listeners who don't know you, if you want to give a little bit of background about yourself and how, you, how you've gotten into reps and warranty insurance, uh, and, and also a little bit about ABD, that'd be great. Definitely. So yeah, thank you very much for having me. This is, uh, as Jenna mentioned, uh, you have loyal listeners, and I'm, I'm certainly one of them. Uh, yeah, I got um, into the, uh, the world of insurance and M&A back in 2004 when I joined a sort of upstart brokerage called Equity Risk Partners, which was 
at the time, the only insurance broker that had ever been created or formed to, to exclusively focus on the private equity sector. So over the course of uh, the next 15 years, I worked on, you know, personally led, you know, well in excess of 500 uh, property and casualty insurance due diligence exercises, sort of was involved with well over uh, 2000 we took, we, through the discussions within the firm. So in that time from roughly 2004 to until the business was sold and I, I moved on back in 2018, um, a lot changed when it came to our offering uh, to our private equity clients mainly due to the fact that rep and warranty insurance became a thing, right? Back in 2000. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember hearing one of your, you know, your prior guests talk about how W&I was so prominent in Australia. And, uh, you know, I too witnessed that having been to Australia and met with meeting with private equity firms there, how it was just, everybody was using it in the United States. Nobody was really using it. Um, so uh, around in, in 2018, I left uh, Equity Risk Partners, which was uh, subsequently acquired by Hub. Uh, and formed the M&A advisory practice at ABD. Uh, ABD uh, was uh, formed in 2012 when a group of people left a larger broker and decided that you know, they, this sort of large corporate structure wasn't helping them serve their clients or each other as well, uh, as well as they could. So they left and formed, a, formed ABD. Um, and you know, really just because they felt like there was a better path forward. And when I, when I joined ABD in 2018, I felt like there was a better path forward serving our, you know, the private equity community and the M&A community, uh, really around the sort of the, the thoroughness of, of the due diligence process, uh, the due diligence reports, the efficiency, the speed at which they could be created. So we, uh, you know, built the, started the practice in 2018, um, had a very talented uh, rep and warranty professional come on board in the middle of 2019, uh, uh, Matt Soma, whom you've met, who you know. You know, so my, my background is primarily on the property casualty side, you know, leading due diligence exercises, um, understanding, uh, trying to find the relevant um, top, relevant issues, relevant topics, relevant things about an underlying insurance portfolio, uh, and then bringing that together in a way that's meaningful for weapon warranty underwriters and, and for our weapon warranty placement process. Great. Well, that's a great background, and I think it's a perfect segue into the, the heart of today's show. And I I think, you know, we hear all the time at, at the conferences and in the literature about reps and warranty insurance, that reps and warranty insurance is not intended to, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to basically replace all the company's other insurance programs that right. they have. Uh, and I think that's a, a real, um, you know, core uh, tenet of the product. And obviously the reps and warranty insurers like to see insurance in other, other different areas. Um, but I do think that oftentimes in the middle of a deal, you know, there's a couple questions about what the underlying insurance is. It doesn't seem sometimes like there's a lot of scrutiny about what the coverages are or how this right. may interact with reps and warranty insurance. So, so maybe you could start off just by, uh, you know, talking to our listeners who are underwriters out there about, you know, why they should care about the adequacy of the target's underlying insurance portfolio and how they could go about also sort of assessing that, that risk. Like all insurance policies, a rep and warranty insurance uh, contract has a other insurance clause, right? So, you know, there all insurance policies don't want to pay a claim that that there is another policy in place that could address that that issue. Right. Um, rep and warranty is obviously much broader. It does things that other insurance policies can't do, weren't designed to do. 
you know, it, it's it's got its own set of things that it's there to address that is unique uh, to other insurance policies. But there are other, you know, there are other parts of that purchase agreement where seller is repping to uh, something that could be covered by uh, a, a, a well-structured uh, insurance policy. So you know, employment-related matters, for instance, you know, the employment practices liability policy is perfectly designed to address that type of risk, right? So, you know, the, the rep and warranty insurance policy doesn't want to step in and pay that type or get involved with that type of matter if if there is a well-structured employment practices policy in place, for instance, to, to address that type of exposure. So the the trick is that we're trying to address uh, unknown claims that have that 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 occurred pre-close, right? And we want to have the ability to report claims to those policies into the future, right? right. So it's it's not you know it's 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 pretty easy to structure a insurance program starting today to cover things that that we don't know about they're going to happen in the future. It's how do you how do you make sure that those that the policies that are in place can can address the past, right? And I think that's that, that's really the core thing that a rep and warranty underwriter cares about is if if we want if at some point in the next three to six years based on how long our coverage is being provided we need to report a claim back in time you know will we have a mechanism to do that and based on the size scope industry sector of that of the company that they're insuring or the the the, the company that's involved in the transaction you know what is there enough insurance was it compliant with uh, the contracts and leases and that the company had in place? Uh, is there a limit left? You know, is there, uh, are the insurance companies solvent? <laughs> you know, all everything yeah. that they would want to know to to make sure that there there is a insurance program that they can that they can tap into if if they need it. So one of the ways that we see that happening a lot is in the insurance diligence reports. There's a lot of discussion about you know, purchasing an uh, insurance policy with coverage for prior acts, usually like management liability, cyber. And then there's also discussions about like a tail going forward. So can you speak a little bit to the way that those interact, especially, um, you know, because normal insurance, my understanding is that you a tail is, is not really designed to pick up if there wasn't prior insurance, right? It really is just designed to pick up like a claims made to extend the sort of the claims made period so that there's still coverage on the prior policy. So if you could speak right. a little to how that like that works and why those recommendations are so common, I think that'd be very helpful. Yeah, so, so there's really, insurance policies are primarily written in two different, uh, two different policy forms, an occurrence policy form or a claims made policy form. Uh, an, an occurrence policy form basically provides um, life, call it lifetime coverage for incidents that, incidents that occur during a policy period, regardless of when the claim is reported, right? So if we, if something, so then a claims made policy uh, is only covers incidents that happen or reported within the policy's timeframe, unless a tail is purchased. So let's take an example of, you know, we find out about something today that occurred two years ago. With an occurrence policy form, you know, assuming that it's covered and it's a covered loss and all those things, you know, an occurrence policy form, we would report that claim to the policy that was in place two years ago. With a claims made policy form, we would report that claim to the policy that's in place today. The claim is being made today. So what happens with, you know, so an occurrence policy form is really, as, as long as the, the, the limit isn't depleted on that, on that policy, it's still there for you in the future. 
when it and when a change in ownership happens, change of control happens, you know, that doesn't change what what we, what was purchased two, three, four, five years ago. It's it's still there. Right. With a claims made policy, when the change in control happens, it, it as you've mentioned, Jen, it converts to runoff. So that policy stops responding to, well, I should say most claims made policies have a change in control provision and they will say, you know, when a change in majority control happens, uh, majority ownership happens, they stop responding to claims that occur and are reported post-close. They will only respond to claims that occurred pre-close, but are reported post-close until the policy naturally expires. So let's say it's it's April 22nd, the policy uh, expires on November 1st. It's been on November 1st, 2021. Um, it's paid in full. It's in good standing with the insurance company. Change in ownership happens today. Well, that policy will continue to respond to claims that occurred pre-close that are reported between April 22nd and November 1st. Um, now that that isn't that, that period of time that that you know six months or so that that's available in that in that scenario I just gave isn't normally enough of a of reporting window for uh, for rep and warranty underwriters or for buyers or sellers right that they want right. to have access to that policy that was in place pre-close for a longer period of time than that. You know, right. DNO, you want to exceed the statute of limitations for the types of claims that could be reported. Employment matters, the same thing. You, you want to make that everybody wants to know that, that they can report claims to that policy for a long enough period of time that anything that could have come up pre-close, you know, would have already been, would have been uh, brought to the surface. So we buy what's called a tail policy. So we, all we're doing is extending that period, extending the period of time that we can report claims to that policy after the change in ownership happens. Great, yep. that makes a lot of sense, right? And then um, we see also, there's often comments about that the insurance companies will waive the change of consent requirement. Mm -hmm. um, so is that is that actually like a very common thing that happens or is that something that um, is an onerous on the insurance? Uh, you know, it, it happens. It happens very often for certain lines of coverage, and then it never happens for other lines of coverage. <laughs> you know, in my almost twenty years of doing this, I've seen one DNO insurer in that period of time say, "Yeah, we'll just yeah. waive our change of control provision, let that policy continue." You know, like, like they, 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 there's a pretty, it's a pretty um, well-worn path of saying we'll put the, the the company's policy into runoff, and then buy, uh, or I should say, we'll buy a tail on the company's policy. And then on the, on the target's policy, and they get new coverage going forward. In other cases, like with uh, and and frankly, buyer and seller like it that way. You know, right. the, the the seller likes to know that there's that, that there is a dedicated insurance policy that's there for them that was on their watch. That if the uh, that if the buyer changes the terms of the policy, that won't affect them because they know you know what they purchased when they own the business is is still going to be there in its current form going forward right so but in certain things that are more operational you know for the business like cyber liability you know right. uh, that is a claims made policy that can have the same effect where you buy a tail and you buy new coverage but um, underwriters are more amenable to just saying look you know the, you're going to have the same company doing the same thing to the same customers with the same employees with the same contracts let's just let's just continue this policy which frankly provides a nice level of continuity for the business going forward to not have to replace that policy and 
and worry about which claim, you know, which, 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 which where do I report the claim to the runoff for the new policy? So, you know, right. there, yeah, so there are, there are some, even though the, you have two policies that have the same, like you said, change of control provision, like, like they, 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 they can respond to it differently um, based on lots of different factors, but yeah, it's, it's usually not an onerous process. Usually if an underwriter likes an account and they want to stay on it. You just can't, and, and they're, they're so well-versed these days in, in <laughs> these transactions, you know, just to call yeah. them up and say, Hey, this company's going through a change in ownership. Can we, can, you know, they'll, they'll ask a few questions and normally just say, okay, that's fine. Great. Great. Well, I, I, I think that's all, that's all very helpful and useful information. And I think a question I had too, Josh, was we see a lot of times, um, in the end bills, and we see underwriters sometimes quoting that the reps warranty insurance will sit, you know, sort of quote excess of and no broader than, you know, the cyber policy or the environmental policy. And maybe you can just explain for our listeners a little bit, like what that what that concept exactly is, and and how it sort of interacts with the reps and warranty um, uh, insurance. I, I know what we've gotten questions about this sometimes from more. Uh, junior underwriters and how to sort of utilize this concept to better, better protect the insurers and make the best use of the underlying insurance. Yeah, that, that, that's a, it's a um, very common concept these days. Um, and with excess of no broader than wording, the rep and warranty policy sits excess of the limits of the, on the company's underlying insurance. So if the underlying insurance excludes it, the rep and warranty policy will exclude it. This is much less favorable coverage. Uh, the, the wording prevents the recovery of damages that would be ordinarily uh, re be recoverable from the seller. Um, so an, a rep and warranty policy that does not include excessive, exa, excess of and no broader than wording uh, wouldn't exclude a claim because the underlying insurance program excludes it. Um, right. So the, uh, the buyer you know, could recover losses from the rep warranty policy that might be exp expressly excluded from an underlying insurance policy. And like in a cyber liability example, um, you know, a damage to reputation, loss of goodwill, things of that sort likely wouldn't be covered on the cyber policy that may be, uh, you know, may be covered on a, on a, uh, if it were just a, a rep and warranty claim. So it, it takes it away from getting true rep and warranty insurance coverage and more making a much more heightened, you know, putting a much bigger spotlight on the underlying insurance and, and the different and, and its adequacy. Well, yeah, we have, we have certainly seen that, uh, you know, that, that be utilized, I think in particular when there are specific risks, like, I mean, environmental is one I know we've, we've seen that, uh, you know, fairly yeah. frequently when there's some hairy environmental things that, um, uh, you know, they may want to exclude entirely, uh, but sometimes they know that they have other environmental insurance. So, you know, we'll set excess of and no broader than that insurance. And at least that provides a little bit of extra coverage that the, that the reps and warranty insurer will provide on top of that. So the other question I had, Josh, was, uh, you know, there, there can be some insurance products that can address, uh, well, I think maybe your best thought of as sort of legacy concerns, like successor yep. liability, discontinued products. How, how does that sort of insurance work and how does that interplay with reps and warranty insurance? Uh, yeah, these are products that exist. They're, the insurance companies are ready to write them. <laughs> They're ready to use, you know, to, to deploy them. 
but they are rarely purchased, frankly, at least in my experience. And I think when you get to more um, the, 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 the types of transactions that are more common these days, like technology transactions, you know, you're, you're not acquiring a, a manufacturing business right, that has right. product in the stream of commerce necessarily, you know, that, that also feeds into the lack of utilization. But uh, with, with a great example of a discontinued, like a practical use of a discontinued products policy, uh, we worked um, on a transaction a number of years ago where uh, the seller was a large, much larger organization and they carved out an encore asset. And the seller had a $5 million self-insured retention for product liability. And while they would be responsible for any incurred but not reported losses, based on you know, product that was manufactured and sold on their watch, you know, they were only selling the business for $60 million and they didn't want to be responsible for the first $5 million of every single claim right. <laughs> that, that, that could possibly come up. So we crafted a discontinued products policy to say, look, any, any product that was manufactured, there is, there is insurance in place, right? There is insurance that you could go to, um, but for one reason or another, we just don't want anything to do. You know, we, we don't want to report claims to that policy. So we crafted a discontinued products policy that, that would address any product that was manufactured or sold pre-close that resulted in a post-close claim. So very similar to a tail policy, like what we just talked about with claims made, you know, we, we, we basically you know, did the same thing here for, for product liability. The, the policy like specifically listed the the the, the last SKU number of every single product <laughs> that they sold, right? So if in the future that that claim came about, they could say, okay, when was this? Look at the product and look at the label and determine when it was manufactured and determine should it go to the discontinued products policy or the buyer's policy. Um, so um, there there can be so there's situations where maybe a product was truly discontinued or um, there's uh, the the buyer knows that they're not necessarily responsible for the the things that occur the, the product that was manufactured pre-closed, but they still want to have some protection around. But what if a claim comes up, and what if I'm brought into it, and what if what if we can't find the insurance policy from from so many years ago? Um, this policy could step in and, and address that. And then you have situations where maybe seller did not buy high enough limits. Maybe they grew too, they grew so grew grew quickly and didn't their insurance limits didn't keep up with their growth, right? Or um, primarily, when I say that, I'm talking about umbrella uh, or just your product liability coverage in general. That they look back and say, look, that the the insurance company they bought from five years ago um, is defunct, or they had the types of they had a really bad claims year, or there is a limit left, and or uh, they didn't buy enough limit for our taste. You can put in, you know, put a policy in place that that call it successor liability, call it retroactive retroactive limits of liability. You can buy a policy that basically corrects decisions that were made in the past or circumstances uh, in the past that were out of the out of the insurance control, but basically lifting the 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 limit of liability for um, for the, the past policies that were purchased. So one more question for you that's sort of substantive before we move into our fun section of the podcast. Okay. I'm ready for the fun section. You're ready. <laughs> well, we suffer through one more. One all right. All right. One more. Yeah. Is that we're wondering, do you have any advice for underwriters who are trying to figure out if a cyber policy is sufficient? I mean, 
I think we all sort of are just like, it's a small company, a million dollars, probably fine. It's a huge company. There's a lot of pot, like there's a lot of privacy information, private information that's being stored. Like we need to be 5 million. But I, I just remember this a one underwriting call I had where we just asked, like, in your opinion, is the cyber policy sufficient? And the answer was like, went on and not like, well, it's impossible to know. And then business interruption and this. And so, right. I mean, I'm sure that that's the truth at the end of the day is that it's like really hard to assess, but do, do you have advice or sort of like goalposts or any sort of like guidelines that you might um, want to share about whether or not the cyber policy actually is sufficient? You know, Jenna, when I, when I, what, if I were asked that question, keeping in mind what the rep and warranty is going on and on. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and I'd say that broker's answer on a go forward basis. Yeah. Is accurate. It's hard. Right. And right. Cause it, it used to be how many records do you have? Is that PII? Is it personally right. identifiable information? Is it personal health information? Is it personal financial information? How many of those records do you have multiplied by the, the, the cost of notification and uh, right. uh, you know, credit monitoring, all this, like, like, and there's your limit, you know, and, and now there's plenty of benchmarking data to help, help kind of guide that. But then you add in the, the claim of the day, which is these ransom events, you know, or extortion where I'm going to shut down your network, your business can't operate until you, you know, until you wire me, you know, send me 5 million Bitcoin. Like, like, so now the whole equation that we used to have of, Number of records times the you know potential cost of notification equals your limit. Now it's like it, it, it's it's much more complicated than that. But when you think about from a rep and warranty underwriter's perspective, you know what do they care about, right? They, they don't care about you know necessarily you know, when that change in ownership happens. They care about things that happened in the past that we don't know right. about. Exactly. Not so <laughs> right. Ransom events. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't care about ransom events. Like they don't, you know, what's <laughs> if that, but in the future, in the, right. yeah, in the future, yeah, they, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Cause we would have known about that by now had, had the, you know, right. when, the, when the transaction closes. So I, I think it's, it's a little more, um, the, the, the coming up with that limit based because then it, then it comes back to the more traditional form of calculation, right? How much right. limits appropriate for this business? I can tell you that, um, so, so there is plenty of benchmarking data. There's there are breach calculators. There are um, we we have access to more information now. Unfortunately, right because there have been so many claims, you know there 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 we have access to data to help get to that to that right limit based on those sort of traditional metrics. But mm -hmm. I can tell you that a company um, how much limit a company should buy is increasing. Um, no company should be under a million dollars of limit. Right um, and mm -hmm. um, and. I would I would pay, and I, I see this coming from underwriters now, more of a heightened focus on the sublimits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could the policy you could look at if you just looked at the general aggregate limit or the aggregate limit on a cyber policy, you would say, oh, it covers up to five million dollars. Right. right? But, but then there's a sublimit for notification costs and a sublimit for, you know, um, you know all, all these different all, all these different coverages that aren't covered up to five million dollars. You know, we we're going to limit this to a hundred thousand and list the two hundred fifty thousand. So, I'd say some special attention to what's sublimited and is that right. relevant to that business. And frankly, could it be increased before the transaction closes? Right. Because um, I, I think the the period of time we're really concerned with is that period between sign and close. 
you know, the, the, the especially the, for things like notification costs, et cetera. Right. Yeah. yeah so the, the deal's announced, hasn't closed yet. You know, I, to, to me, I think that triggers some bad actors to say, hey, there's an opportunity here. <laughs> right. Know, and, and if there's a, well, if, if that, if that company will be tucked into a larger organization that close, they're going to have access to higher limits. They're going to have access to, you know, maybe different, you know, better, different insurance companies. Like they don't, they won't have access to that until the transaction closes. Right. right? So I, I, I'd say, you know, try any effort to get sublimits increased to uh, the full limit uh, that relevant sublimits and getting that done pre-signing, you know, right. or shortly after signing um, would be, um, something I would focus on if I was a, a, an underwriter. Well, that is very helpful, Josh. Thank you. Okay. Um, okay. Well, now moving <laughs> away from the like hardcore substantive analysis portion of the podcast and into the fun portion of the podcast. So All right. sounds like you've listened to our podcast, so you know what's coming. So it's time for once more unto the breach, our quick hits here. So why don't you tell us the biggest change that you anticipate coming down the road in the rep and warranty insurance industry in the next 12 months? Yeah, when I look at it through just my my lens, if I just stay in my lane, um, <laughs> I, I do ex, I do expect more scrutiny of the underlying insurance portfolio. You know, I just I, I just I think that um, the, you know, we only get five minutes in that two and a half hour long underwriting call, right? <laughs> <laughs> But I, I find hours, that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but I do find that in the end bills and in the sort of, you know, uh, the sort of pre-underwriting questions and pre-underwriting call questions and the call, questions that are being asked during the underwriting call, they're getting a little more detail, a little more depth. And I, I think there's, there's maybe, I don't know what's happened, but there, maybe it's the uptick in claims and maybe they're finding, that, which we all know has happened in the rep and warranty space. Maybe they're finding that while wow, we're paying claims that could have been paid by a different insurance policy uh, by, right. by real insurance policy. So I'm starting to just sense that there's more knowledge, more knowledge on the underwriters side about in terms of this type of industry sector, this will be a heightened concern. I'm going to you know, really focus on the, the quality of this type of insurance. Um, I'm going to exclude it until you prove to me that I shouldn't, <laughs> you know, um, uh, but yeah, I just, I expect there to just be more, more heightened focus on that, on that in that area. Okay, great. Yeah. And then um, what's one piece of advice that you would give someone who might be interested in working in a career in rep and warranty insurance? You know, uh, I'd say just from, just in terms of serving the MA community in general, I'd say uh, more, more so than uh, rep and warranty insurance. Um, you know, I, I, I serve the private equity community um, for, geez, you know, 10, 12 years. And I thought, I finally got to the point, maybe it was Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, 10,000 rule or whatever. I finally got to the point where things started to really like, and what this didn't happen after 15 years, but it happened after some period. I finally got to the point where it was like, I got this, right? Like, I, I know what's coming mm -hmm. next. I, you know, like, like th things kind of slowed down for me. And, and then the company I worked for got acquired. <laughs> and I went through this process. I was part of the team to help sell the business and, you know, was there post-acquisition and, you know, trying to still do Were my the cyber job. limits sufficient for the acquisition? Right, exactly. <laughs> 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 you know, and, I, and going through that, pro that sale process and, you know, being involved with it, I gained a much better understanding of what everybody's going through in these deals. Sure. And 
having worked on hundreds of these transactions, I thought I knew, I thought I knew what everybody was going through, you know, and I, th- I thought I had a good sense for that, but it completely changed once I was on the other end of it. So I'd say any advice, whatever piece of advice I would give is one, you know, once you get into this, like try to re- do all, you know, short of going through it, like I did, like actually going through a sale process. You can't, like, <laughs> you can't, you can't right. do that. Yeah. <laughs> try really hard to understand what everybody's going through, everybody's perspectives, because there are a lot of, you know, in, in these deals where there's the bankers or the, you know, the buy side attorneys, sell side attorneys, accountants, you know, all these, every, everybody's got a different perspective. And I think I gained a better perspective of what every, of what everybody was going through, which I think made me a better broker and it made me a better, uh, better service provider. So um, I would say, you know, as best you can really try to get in other people's shoes and, and understand what, what they're, what they're thinking and what they're feeling, what they're going through. Yeah, I think I think it's a, I think it's an excellent point. I think that's actually one strength that we've thought of our underwriting counsel practice here at Cyfarth is uh, you know both Jen and I had done a lot of work as both buy side counsel and sell side counsel on deals. Um, so you know we do understand the perspective that they bring to the table um, and you know try to take that into account when we're also being underwriting counsel. And I think that that is you know having a holistic view of all this and recognizing all the different roles everybody has is just really critically important. So I, I think it's a great great point, Josh. So. Also, well, so good our, advice for life, you know. It is good advice for life. How philosophical we are in the spring. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, the, the thing the thing that hit me between the eyes is I thought I knew, right? right. I thought I knew what they were going through, right? But no, I didn't. Yeah. As um, well as I could have. Well, so I think our, our last question, and maybe not so much a question, but just uh, maybe a, a point of order on the show. Uh, Josh, you mentioned at the beginning that you had worked with uh, Equity Risk Partners and some other alumni and former guests of uh, the podcast. Also, you also worked with them uh, while you were there. And uh, I think you said both Bill Manette, uh, who was on a recent episode, and Kirk Sanderson were also folks that you worked with at, uh, at Equity Risk Partners, right? Yeah, yeah, we've, uh, was, uh, it was a, a, a great team there. A lot of, a lot of very talented people worked there and, um, I definitely enjoyed my time working with with uh, with those two gentlemen. Well, whenever whenever the pandemic's over, we will have a Equity Risk Partners Into the Breach alumni podcast dinner with the three of you, and we can definitely. all reminisce about your time there and your definitely. shows. I love that idea. I know you have to all listen to each other's shows, and you can like quiz each other about like that's you know, right. What Bill so basically, said after the pandemic is over and no work will be done, it'll all be in-person get-togethers and podcast reunions. So I, I like. I remember uh, I went to Paris with Bill. We presented to a bunch with a big group of insurance brokers from around the world that were there for a conference, and we went there together. And we were presenting to them, and and we had to take the channel to London, and we were running through the running through the train station covered with sweat we got you know we got into the train and like we got the last two seats and our legs were interlocked on the channel. and I think he looked at me and said really glamorous huh I'm like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we, we had some fun times together and uh, I really uh, glamorous I mean that particular like running to get the train I also once almost missed my uh yeah. what is what's it called the why do I want to call it the bullet it's not the bullet but the channel. uh like, yeah, yeah the channel I also once missed my uh, train and it was not glamorous, but still presenting in Paris and then, you know, 
leap just hopping over to London is is actually especially now when the biggest vacations we have is like Brian's so lodge in the wood. (laughs) (laughs) Very glamorous too. Yeah, I I don't. It's funny. I don't know that we saw the light of day the whole time we were there. But yeah, yeah, it was it was great. So no, well, it's thank, thank you for having me. Thank well, you. thank you very much, Josh. Thank we you. really appreciate yeah. this. Yeah, this was a great discussion of a very important and timely topic. And you know, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and uh and being with us. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, great. Well, that'll uh, wrap up today's show. And this was uh, another episode of Into the Breach. We appreciate uh, our listeners joining us and until next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Into the Breach. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, please visit rwipodcast.com. The views and opinions expressed by Brian O'Keefe and Jenna Usenheimer in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Cyfarth Shaw, LLP, its partners, or its employees. The podcast does not provide legal or other professional services. This podcast is made available by the lawyer publishers for educational purposes only, as well as to give you general information and a general understanding of the law, not to provide specific legal advice. By listening to this podcast, you understand that there is no attorney-client relationship between you and the lawyer publishers. The podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state. As defined in the State Bar of New York's Code of Professional Responsibility, This podcast is considered a form of attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee similar outcomes.